Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy with Steve Walsh here. Hello. Stuffed walrus to my patchwork uh, giraffe. <laughs> Overstuffed walrus. Because it is. It's not an insult. It's a statement of fact. Until you apply it to another person, then it's an insult. This week, we're talking about the Horniman Museum. I was going to say in Forest Hill, Steve. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Because it's on near, Forest Hill. On Forest Hill, yeah. It's sort mm. of just past Dunwich. We took a trip there last week. Me, yourself, and. Can't remember her name. <laughs> Little girl. What's her? Yeah, Xavier, my daughter. Yeah. Yeah, it was my first day looking after her now that uh, Keisha's gone back to work from maternity leave got her on Wednesdays. But yeah, great. I mean, she uh, particularly enjoyed parts of it. It's a great place to take your kid, isn't it? That's yeah, it's, it's and that's, cool. I think, it's best known almost for being child-friendly. Yeah, absolutely. But as we'll uncover today, there's so much more to it than a place to take the kids in holidays. First time I went there, well, I went there with school, I imagine. Definitely went there as a kid. But the most recent time I went there before this, I went with Lamaya, Lakeisha's cousin, who at the time must have been about two. And uh, yeah, we had a good time. But I didn't explore, I didn't go up the hill. We went in the museum, went in the aquarium and came out. Oh, you didn't go into the gardens? No. To that whole side of it, I missed out on completely. So I was well pleased to... Well, there's parts of it that have only been open quite recently, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. SouthLondonHardcore.com for back episodes. T-shirts. Access to uh, an Amazon link that means if you buy your own stuffed walrus, you know, we get a little bit of money kicked back. Twitter is at SLHC. Instagram also. And if you've got time, leave us an iTunes comment. Because that does go a long way to them. Yeah, band. there's an algorithm that uh, makes us successful if we get comments. Even bad ones, I think. Yeah. As long as there's lines of text written out. I mean, if you want to just go on... Didn't someone give us four stars once? I thought that was outrageous. Which is, to be honest, that's probably what we are, aren't we? Four out of five podcasts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Solid four out of five podcasts. This is the sort of one every five episodes that just tanks, though, isn't it? <laughs> Going right back to the beginning. The Horneman Tea Company was the biggest tea company in the world. Founded by John Horneman in 1826. Now owned by Dow Egbert, so... I don't like tea. Have you ever had Horneman tea? I haven't. I And I, from what I understand, it was available within my lifetime. I think now it only exists as a brand in Spain. And obviously at this point there's a lot of tea companies. But John Horneman's particular genius is mechanising the process. Allowing him to put together tea bags quicker, more efficiently... And he also had a way of, apparently at this time, a lot of loose leaf tea uh, was uh, dust and leaves and branches. Just anything that's like scattered around on the fields. They're not sort of really being too careful about what actually goes into the boxes. It's a bit like when they have like flour and cocaine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. They're cutting the product. Baking uh, soda. That's it. They're cutting the product, right? They're just there. So the reputation of the company improves as the quality of the tea is uh, seen by customers. Um, And by 1891, Horneman's is the biggest tea company in the world. He's not from South London, Horneman, is he? He's from a place I've been, though, on a South London excursion. Oh, yeah. Newport Isle of Wight. 
Oh. Yeah, when Following they're... the Hamlet. Yeah, yeah. It's the only time I've ever been overseas to watch Was that the an Hamlet. FA Cup? Yeah. So yeah, John Horneman, as you say, from the Isle of Wight, and makes his fortune in tea, which obviously isn't sold from South London, but moves to London to be near the docks, essentially, and near the processing plants, near the, the industry um, of the tea-making business, and settles in South London. But it wasn't him that founded the Hornibus Museum, was it? It was his son. It was his son, but... Who was born in Bridgewater, Somerset, but... Okay. But the Horniman is, is built on... The Horniman Museum is built on the site of the Horniman family home. Right. But as you say, yeah, it's John Horniman who builds up the business and hands it on to his son, Frederick John Horniman, who continues the tea business, but obviously, rather than make a fortune, he's inherited a fortune. So... It's like a Kardashian or something, and he can just go out and just start getting some mad hobbies. And he decides, like a lot of people who come into fortune this time, that he's going to collect. Yeah. You know, you're at the height of the empire. While tea's moving around the world, people are moving around the world. Mm. Get Goods me some Ben in bronzes. <laughs> but yeah, it would make sense. You know, he's in an import-export business. He would have access to uh, merchant shipping and ways of getting goods around the world uh, a very cost-effective uh, price, as well as just having the money to go into, you know, an auction house in London and just buy um, a nice-looking uh, musical instrument. He set the museum up in 1898. Well, it opened in 1901, didn't it? That's when the work started. Yeah. 30,000 objects he started with, and we've now got ten times that. Well, it's a similar story to the first ever museum that opened to the public, which is also in South London, yeah. the Jurassic Museum in uh, Vauxhall, where someone's personal collection outgrows the house. And essentially, like Judescent, initially, Horniman opens his home to the public to let people see the goods that he's accumulated. And I think, we'd imagine what happens is the success of that leads to him just buying more things. And apparently, and this is according to the Horniman and website, so this isn't me just trying to cause trouble in the Horniman household. But apparently, his wife just sort of said, "It's the museum or your family. We can't both live in this house." Right. So at that point, they move the family into another home, and the house is given over. But then again, outgrows even that. So eventually, in 1901, the house is demolished. It was a, a, a lovely Victorian villa, apparently, but it's demolished, and its place is is, is built uh, a purpose built and designed museum space. Yeah, the architect was Charles Harrison Townsend, and he did a marvellous job, didn't he? Oh, it's just beautiful, isn't it? So, so nice. He did uh, the Bishopsgate Institute and the Whitechapel Art Gallery. Do you know them? Yeah, I've uh, appeared in a piece in the Whitechapel Art Gallery. A nude? (laughs) No, it was uh, a friend of mine, a friend of a friend of mine, who was doing it. He did things about impossible spaces. And he wanted to do, <laughs> uh, he wanted to do a eleven-a-side football match with a referee, but in on a, a tiny little pitch that would just have enough space for twenty-three people to stand on, right. and then just throw a ball into it and see what happened. What position did you play? I was a referee. <laughs> right. yeah. um, it was great. I was just like flashing yellow cards at everyone all the time. It was and then he just sort of filmed it and photographed it, and that was to do with. The, at the time, the Whitechapel Art Gallery realised there'd been some sort of survey done, and they realised that in the square miles around the Whitechapel Art Gallery, there were more artists than anywhere else in Europe. 
or indeed the world. I yeah, think. that's not a huge it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Particularly yeah. at this point. Um, so they, uh, yeah, the, the celebration, they just sort of invited local artists to send in ideas and then picked out some of them. So yeah, we were in um, the uh, Spitalfields Market. He got space in the Spitalfield Market and just oh, set right. out um, a thing. Brilliant. And, yeah, it's really good fun. Really good fun. So yeah, that's my uh, and went to the opening at Whitechapel Art Gallery as well. Lovely gallery. It's great. Yeah, it's um, apparently all his stuff is in the arts and crafts style. Yeah, mm. but it's a really sort of gentle style, isn't it? It's a lot of uh, rounded edges, uh, a lot of curves. Um, on this particular building, a lot of carvings, a lot of decoration. It's just uh, gorgeous. Really, really nice. Is the thirty-foot uh, mosaic his? Well, he didn't do it, I know, but no. would he have said, like, stick a mosaic up there? I don't know. that's just, that's great as well. Yeah, it? it's really nice. Isn't it? I mean, the fact that it suits the building so well, you'd, you'd imagine that it was done in... Humanity uh, in the House of Circumstance. Yeah, which is uh, a great name for anything, isn't it? Anything. God, I might call one of my albums that. <laughs> and the actual, and it was great, just sort of, you know, I've, got, I've lived near and gone past and visited the Horniman so many times without knowing the actual history of the place and you know you learn the story of the buildings that are you know the the, the scene you see from the, the street but realizing that the the round window on the tower on the original building was the office of uh, frederick horniman that was where he based himself oh. yeah yeah and you know that original the the arch doorway underneath is the original entrance to the museum you know uh beautiful and reading about you know the history of of the four buildings because you know the original building is built in 1901 by 1911 it's so successful that charles harrison townsend built an extension onto the building which is next door um same materials same style obviously you know it corresponds and looks great and gives them more space to play with but it's interesting looking at the the rest of the structures you have in 1996, an eco-building, which is the sort of thing that you sort of shudder a little when you read that, don't you? Someone's put an eco-building on the Is that the Centre for Understanding the Environment? Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the building, you know, as, as you look at it from the road, most to the left. So it's you would have had the original building, the extension, then this built with a gap in between. And you'd imagine it's because it is very distinct from the original buildings. They wouldn't want to attach it to it because the contrast would be too strong. But as eco-buildings go, and you know, when you read that it's it's built from wood forested from sustainable uh, forests and has a grass roof, you say, oh, this could be terrible. But it, it's nice. It looks all right, doesn't mm. it? It's a nice sort of uh, in, in keeping as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. It has got almost sort of classical lines to it, even though it's a very modern building. And then in 2002, they built another... Uh, extension onto the actual structure which bridges the two things and again does a really good job you know it's got the same uh, stone is used for the the frontage but then the sort of metal work on the windows and roof echoes the eco building next door so yeah it does it's just a, a really good job of having these four structures that are built you know across uh, a century but still correspond to each other so john horneman makes the fortune Frederick John Horniman inherits a fortune, builds up a collection and opens a museum. And then he has two children. Emsley Horniman, which is an odd name for a young man, 
E-M-S-L-I-E. But it was Frederick Horneman's wife's maiden name. Emsley. Emsley, yeah. So they've obviously, just to sort of keep her family name alive, (laughs) yeah, keep her happy. Shuts her up. (laughs) But yeah, it's an uh, odd name. He he sells uh, the business in 1918 to Jay Lyons and, you know, takes money. But still, they're still investing in the museum and keeping interest in the museum. But of Frederick John Horneman's kids, Emsley's, you know, it's okay. Taking the money, he's investing in the museum. But it's Annie Horneman that uh, is a fascinating character. So Annie Horneman is the daughter of Frederick John Horneman. She is probably best known now as a, a, a patron of the theatre. She established the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, which is possibly Ireland's most famous theatre. Um, Never heard of it. <laughs> um, she also established the Gaiety Theatre in Manchester which was Britain's first ever repertory theatre so she established the whole uh, framework of repertory theatre in England which is pretty important she encouraged and supported the work of a number of new writers and playwrights including uh, W.B. Yeats and George Bernard Shaw she was a massively important figure in uh, British and Irish theatre. But more significantly, and not more significantly, but interestingly, this is all, it's all linked together by her membership of an occult organisation called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so she was a fascinating character. She's an heiress, theatre patron, and... Occultists, yeah. Which you know, these are this is this is the modern world, and she was a very uh, modern. You're only one out of those three, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, she's born at Surrey Mountain Forest Hill, so uh, I I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think Emsley was. So I think Annie Horneman's the only actual South London. Yeah, under all the Hornemans, which is good. Um, Her father was opposed to theatre because he thought it was sinful. But fortunately, she had a German governess who, when she was 14, took her and Emsley to see The Merchant of Venice at Crystal Palace. Oh. Yeah. So again, you know, it's, Local. It, it's just like the road. She goes to the Slade School of Fine Art in 1882, discovers while there that she's not particularly talented as an artist, but develops a love for theatre and opera that encourages her to go into that field. She cycled everywhere in London, which sounds pretty standard, but at that point was scandalous. Um, Smoked in public. (laughs) There was no stopping her. She was just off off the rails, this one. But as I say, best known now, um, aside from her work in theatre, as a pretty important member of the Golden Dawn. Um, The Golden Dawn was a fascinating organisation. One of the significant things about the Golden Dawn was the fact it was um, an egalitarian organisation. You know, women could rise as quickly as men to positions of power. And Annie Horneman became a pretty influential member. Mainly, you'd imagine, because she's got access to ready money. So, yeah. you know, if you're buying robes, it was a very... And it was, a, it was an organisation... But no, it was an organisation based on very elaborate ritual. Right. Which is quite interesting as well when you see the sort of connections between 
the Golden Dawn and the Emerging Theatre. This is where she meets Yates. They're both dressing up and pretending to be Egyptian gods and goddesses. And suddenly they're off writing plays together and she's funding them in this costume. So there's a huge sort of link, I think, between the performativity of their activities in the Golden Dawn and the activities they go on to become famous for. The Golden Dawn was founded in 1887 by three men, uh, William Woodman, William Westcott and Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers. They're all Freemasons and Rosicrucians. By the time that Annie Horneman joins in 1890, Woodman's left, Westcott's just been pushed out, and Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers is essentially taking over the organisation. But it's in a very formative stage. He hasn't really got an income, because what he wants to be is a high priest of... Uh, a, a magical order, which, you know, until you're getting the members in and you're getting your subs in, there's not really a lot to fall back on. So Annie Horneman gets him a job as her father's assistant at the Horneman Museum. Right, assistant so, to her father. <laughs> so for a few years, uh, Mathers and his wife are based at Stent Lodge in Forest Hill, and he's helping to collate and assemble the collection that will become... Uh, the Hornwood Museum. A few years ago, probably about three years ago now, before we even started doing the podcast, I went to see a talk in Shoreditch called The Women of the Golden Dawn. So I'd read a book about the women of the Golden Dawn and just found the whole thing fascinating, particularly Annie Horneman. Now I was intrigued by the fact that she was Were you she hoping was to from... meet some uh, occultist females? <laughs> it was uh, the, the crowd was pretty much what you'd imagine, including me, obviously. Um, but I was fascinated by the idea of this occultist and feminist and visionary and theatrical pioneer being born in Forest Hill. And as I said, this was long before the show. And it was a a talk given by a woman called Geraldine Beskin, who owns Atlantis Books um, up in Bloomsbury. And there was a little Q&A at the end. And I'd read the book. She hadn't mentioned it. But I said, you know, Mathers worked at the Hornby Museum for a while. Is that true? And she's like, yep, yep, that's true. And I was like, is there any record of his time there anything to anything in the collection that indicates his interests and she's like no they deny all knowledge of him if you ask the Horner Museum she's asked many times on you know uh, for academic purposes trying yeah. to write books and, and essays about this um, and apparently there's uh, a portrait of Mathers in the Horneman collection that was painted by another member of Dawn and donated to him and he just left it in the collection and um, I think she's made offers to buy it before Oh, right. Or made inquiries about it, and they just deny all knowledge of it. They're like, this doesn't exist. And maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's uh, <laughs> could have disappeared a, a number of ways over the years. But they won't acknowledge any connection between um, the Golden Dawn and the Horneman Museum. But, of course, at this time, he's leading the Golden Dawn. He's living there. So, essentially, for about two or three years... The Hermetic Order of Golden Dawn is based at the Horneman Museum in Forest Hill. Eventually, um, they become very successful, move into uh, you know special digs up in central London, attract members uh, such as, uh, let's say, W.B. Yeats, Arthur Macken, Alistair Crowley joins and causes a massive schism uh, that ends up with Annie Horneman leaving uh, the Golden Dawn. Such a troublemaker. <laughs> in 1933, Annie Horneman is made a companion of honour. She receives uh, 
an honour from the Queen. That means that Annie Horniman and Algernon Blackwood are the only known past or present members of an occult society to receive an honour from the United Kingdom. Not bad, is it? Pretty good. I suppose uh, once Alan Moore gets his MBE... (laughs) And he'll take it. it. He'll take it. (laughs) Will he? Finally. Nah, I don't think so. It's free to get in, obviously. It is. As most museums are. You have to pay two or three pounds to get into the aquarium. The one unqualified positive legacy of Tony Blair's Labour government. Free museums and galleries. Yeah, extra for the aquarium. Which is fair enough. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of upkeep there. Fish food and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Once you've got once you've got your herons stuffed and in a case, mm. your maintenance is pretty low, in it? So don't charge to look at stuffed herons. But if you've got if you want to look fish, at herrings, then you have to pay for that. Broadly, right, we're going to, we'll go into detail of what's there. Yeah. But broadly, you've got gardens. Yeah. And then inside, you've got music and natural history yeah. slash anthropology. Yeah. With a, yeah, but even, as you say, anthropology, but that's one case pretty much, isn't it, with all the different chores. It's mostly uh, natural history animals. But, you know, it's a nice selection. Mm. The walrus is on tour at the moment, so you don't get to see him. Yeah, that that was the big selling point, was it? That's the, well, the, the centrepiece. Yeah, it's it's the sort of face of the museum. Everyone knows the walrus. When it came to stuffing the walrus, they weren't really sure what walruses were supposed to look like. Because obviously, you can't go out and observe in the wild. Uh, there's not a great deal of photographs. So they just sort of filled it out and uh, overstuffed it, essentially. So the, the image of a walrus that we have from the Horn Museum is false. But as we know, what am I a fan of? False histories. Yeah, true. And also false taxidermies. Myth bunker. <laughs> is it possible to sort of unstuff someone that's been taxidermied? I'm sure it is. I'm sure they could. But the thing is, it's such a... Sh- do you know what I mean? Like, this yeah. is the walrus everyone's fallen in love with. Let's just Yeah, and it. also, it, the historical object is what people thought a walrus might look like 100 years ago. Yeah, absolutely, Rather yeah. than, an, a, you know, an accurate representation of a walrus. So yeah, bare taxidermy. Yeah. Just one after the other. And when I was a kid, I remember not enjoying it as much because I always found it quite disturbing. These sort it's of animals odd, that look alive but are definitely dead. Yeah. Just, but they've, they've got eyes, they're looking at you. It's very sort I'm going to have to ask my dad because I'm sure we had something stuffed in the house at really? one point. Would we have? I, you could you know, have. In like, I'm talking about like 1988. No, you, was it you, popular? Taxidermy. <laughs> what was taxidermy like in the eighties? I've just got this feeling there was this. I've just had a memory going back there. Maybe I'm getting it confused with going to a museum, but I just seem to remember there being a stuffed something in like a glass case in your house. Maybe for a few years. Whereabouts in your house was it? Like in my parents' bedroom on the floor next to some records or something. Do you know what I mean? And some videotapes with Golden Girls on. <laughs> Dot matrix printer. And a stuffed tipping. Yeah, like maybe like a dodo or something. That seems unlikely, <laughs> doesn't it? It's probably it's this probably no, uh... last one. Good last one. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Xavier didn't really enjoy that part very much. I don't know if it's because of the animals, you know, just being uh, inanimate. Or, you know, she kept giving you funny looks, didn't she, Steve? She was very off of me for about an hour. So, no, uh, le- no less than half hour, hour, wasn't it? Yeah, half but, hour, yeah. you know, but it was while like... we were in that room. Yeah. She was, I think the problem was... And it's was, dark, because it was quite dark. I, she just woken up. You, well, the thing is, you were holding her, 
and I was pushing the pram. Yeah. And I think she was basically keeping an eye on me because she thought at any moment yeah. I was going to scarper. And, you know, her Cheerios are in that little box. Mm. Yeah. I've got, you know, I've got the water in the car. Where are you going with my pram, white man? That's the thing. She's, you know, she's suspicious. Rightly so. Well, rightly so, I was, you know, ready to make a dash. But when we went next door to the music room, despite the, f- not, you know, musical instruments in cases. Yeah. Was there some sounds? No. She just started going bonkers, yeah. didn't she? She just started clapping, clapping and clapping away, wildly. Singing. Yeah. Yeah. She just, like, uh, you know, was full of music at that point. It was, uh, yeah, pretty magical, wasn't it? Yeah, it's wonderful. Didn't realise she was into, like, 300-year-old stringed instruments, but... That's Christmas for isn't it? <laughs> your first harpsichord. <laughs> but not your last. You <laughs> <laughs> had to do it for... Uh, a super sweet 16 and she'd be like this isn't even the right harpsichord I hate you blong <laughs> I would imagine it's uh, quite an impressive collection Steve I mean obviously looking in the window in the shops in Denmark Street at Fender's Telecasters it's a lot more thrilling but is it? I don't know I was just as a kid like as a teen I used to read guitar magazines like it's pornography it's ridiculous <laughs> just be staring at these scratch plates and stuff even now, I go past, look out the window, and it's just, I'm just overwhelmed. If I look in a guitar shop window, just these shiny guitars, so many of them, I'm like, they're so beautiful. Have you been to a place in Brighton? Um, don't think. Massive guitar shop in Brighton. Oh, it has a I massive believe. guitar on the front, doesn't it? I'll have yeah. A look tomorrow. You going tomorrow? Yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I am to see uh, Don't Look Now, aren't I? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, well, it's well worth it, £29 pounds for the cinema, essentially. <laughs> What was I thinking? Ben Wheatley Q&A, right? Yeah, exactly. Nick Rogue. 1,600 instruments they've got. In January, it's expanding. Uh, At Home with Music is the exhibition. I think it's permanent, though, isn't it? I think it's permanent. I think it's just Nick. Because they've got so many musical instruments. Mm. That was one of uh, Frederick Horneman's main obsessions. As we say, the collection can be split pretty much across natural history and musical instruments. Um, yeah, it's going to be a permanent exhibition. I think showing... It's keyboards, basically, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, in all their forms. And they'll have a newly restored Kirkman harpsichord. So, harpsichord is an incredible instrument. I mean, if you yes. put, a, like, a Casio on harpsichord set, and it sounds amazing. <laughs> and they're going to have loads of regular live music there as well, which is good, isn't it? Well, I'm just hoping, finally, that the Donkey Xylophone will make its public mm-hmm. debut. I mean, it, they've, st- they've got it in a collection somewhere. And I mean, I'm stunned that they've got a donkey xylophone. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and listen to our musical episode. Um, <laughs> all will be revealed. Tease. Um, but yeah, to have uh, a xylophone that can turn into a donkey and not have it on permanent exhibition. I mean, obviously, the temptation is going to be there for you to just, you know, whack the bar and watch a, uh, a tail fall out. So. Hmm. We didn't go there this time because Xavier's too young and uh, it was very hot. They've got a musical instrument bit for kids so you just well, like bang stuff it's the hands on bass and it's a great sort of uh, they do story time in there which is really good I've taken my nieces and nephews there before and basically you, you go in they do stories and songs and it's all very interactive and kids get involved and then after that they have these just sort of like packing boxes full of random things that are themed together so like um, there'll be a thing themed around teeth and it'll have like a shark's jawbone and a comb. So it's like quite cleverly done. 
But then within when that, they have that sort of similar stuff at the science museum, Steve, you're outraged and say it's terrible. Tenuously <laughs> <laughs> uh, linked things. <laughs> um, but they've also got, um, as I say, musical instruments, puppets, clothes that kids can wear. So you can like dress up, you can play with puppets, and it's just I think so refreshing to go into a museum. I mean, it's a thing that they're doing more and more in museums now, um, under obviously very controlled conditions with certain objects, but. You know, that's the thing. There's no point going around sort of going, you can't touch this, you can't touch that. You know, it's a musical instrument. You can't, I can't hit those drums. Of course I can. I think their positioning of the shop is quite refreshing as well. Because the standard now is, you know, it's something that's been immortalised in that Banksy film. But exit through the gift shop, isn't it? You know, the idea that museums and galleries are designed in a way that the only way to get out is to go through the shop. Here, you go past the shop... But going inside is an option, uh, so that's quite nice. Feel like less of a trap. And again, the cafe, you know, you can get in that without going through the cafe. You can go through the cafe if you want. It is well dear. It all looks really nice, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that Bonoffi pie looks incredible. I had a homemade lemonade. Not homemade. I mean, it's a place of business, but <laughs> it's not been anyone's home for over a hundred years. You know, Emsley Horniman moved out. He had to. Just behind that, they've got the... Is it the pavilion or the conservatory? conservatory or is it the same yeah. thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's the conservatory. Though. The conservatory is grade two listed from 1894 and was actually moved from the Horniman home in Croydon to the present site in the 1980s. So it was the original Horniman family conservatory. It's, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Really, really nice. Just gorgeous. And it looks... It's one of those things where it looks beautiful, but it looks of its age as well. It's got a, just a little bit of wear and tear to it, where you yeah, can sort definitely. of see that it's been around for a while. Well, it's just in it beautiful from Croydon, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Another thing that came from the family home is the bandstand, which you, we couldn't go out on, could we? I think it was closed, wasn't it? But it's like, it's almost on a cliff face, isn't it? Yeah, they've sort of mounted it onto... Uh, it's actually like two, two stories. Like, if you see it yeah. from the other side... It's not as sort of dangerous looking. As, uh... <laughs> but again, a gorgeous thing, isn't it? Really, really nice. Yeah. And the view from up there. This is, uh, this is what I was saying about having been there in the past and not really taking everything in. Like, you go up that hill and, you know, you've got the gardens, which are great. But, you know, you've got that bandstand on the edge of this, you know, on the edge of Forest Hill, I suppose. And this, you know, incredible view of, uh, of London. Well, the gardens, well, they look great. But again, they're themed really well. Like, if you go through and read the information they give you, they have it sort of broken down. So there's like a corner of the garden that's all plants that become sort of dyes and uh, colourings for clothes. Some that are medicinal and they explain how it works. Some that are food and they explain how it works. Yeah, it's uh, really, it's not just a case, and it, it looks great. There's a nature trail that runs through the gardens as well that you can follow. And the most recent addition to the grounds is the animal enclosure, which we paid a visit to. Yeah, right on a hill, which is fine for goats, and they don't mind a bit of gradient. Well, also, it would be, I'd imagine it would be a practical thing of just moving the animals to the edge so it's not impinging on anything else. If people don't want to see or smell animals, then you can avoid it. So you never know, it's would really, you? It's really well positioned, there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's a small selection. Goats, alpacas, rabbits and sheep. But it's nice, isn't it? Again, yeah, it's just a cup enough. of alpaca. Yeah. Brilliant. You don't need, you know, 
herds of these it's things. It's not a zoo, is it? No, no, this is it, yeah. It's just a bonus, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, and it's nice, you know, the kids can go along and, like, as I was going along with kids, feeding the rabbits grass, I don't know if you're supposed to do that, but I mean, that's <laughs> why it's delete anyway, they're not going to stop them. There's an also uh, a nice element that blends the grounds with the interior of the museum in the sound garden that they have with the selection of drums and xylophones, but all mounted outside and custom-built for the space. Again, Xavier loving it, wasn't she? Yeah, she does love banging stuff. Like She's a big fan of the bongo. I think earlier that day we'd been listening to uh, Push Your Love Girl, Justin Timberlake, and playing the bongo together. Great fun. Yeah, she was a bit unsure about the uh, vertical xylophone, but once she got into it... No stopping her. Something I'd never noticed before wandering through the grounds of the Horniman. Sundials. Everywhere. Everywhere. Had about half a dozen, I think. And I knew there was one. And then you sort of like start to spot the others. It's, um, and no two are the same. So it's not a case of... Uh, it's not for practicality's sake. We're not sort of going to, just to remind you. you know. <laughs> it's it's ten, ten past two now. <laughs> it's five past two when you look at the last <laughs> sundial. But yeah, all slightly different designs. And some of explaining how they work. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I've, I'm a bit sort of dubious about the functionality of some of them. We were trying to work out what the time was from them, even with watches to compare against. And we knew we knew the right answer. So that's almost like a bit of a cheat where you can sort of work back from that and go, twenty past two. I suppose. Show yeah. me how it's twenty past two, and there's just like there's one that's in the shape of an H, which is a nice little touch. But maybe it wasn't even a sundial. Maybe it was just like an ornamental piece like the ornament. And I think uh, an object that people forget about because it's sort of away from everything else because it's on the other side of the building but they've got a totem pole there yeah. which is you know pretty remarkable yeah I mean it's you know it's almost 30 years old yeah that's the thing isn't it when you see it you go but then I say 30 years it's done by um, a native Alaskan isn't it yeah it's carved by in 1989. Nathan Jackson, who's a slinger. The pole depicts figures from an Alaskan legend of a girl who married a bear. There's, there's hope for you yet, Steve. <laughs> I, I would probably be happy to go on the record and say that the Horner Museum is my favourite place in South London. Is well, that a bold right. claim? Might be, innit? But well, you can know, at least great. say it's your favourite museum, can't you? Yeah, it's definitely my favourite museum. I think it is my favourite place in South London, though. I just love just walking through the grounds. Yeah, because the museum's only half of it, isn't it? Really? That's the thing. The I like the museums. I like the museum. I'm, I say, having learned about the history of the structure itself, that's given me a greater appreciation for it. The sort of development of the four separate buildings, all complementary. The fact that, you know, people would have passed through those uh, grounds that I find fascinating. But then what the museum is there and what it's doing. I find fascinating. And it's just beautiful grounds. And it all seems to have been developed in a way that's very much in keeping with the spirit of the place originally. You know, it was the idea when Horniman donated it to the public, he donated it to London County Council and said, I want this to be a place open for people to come in. You know, that's what it is. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's, it's wonderful just to have this space for people to come into. That's not, the grounds, you know, it's a great place for kids to wander around, but it's not a park. It's not no. just a place to to run around. It. It's a place to sort of like look and just be surrounded by beautiful things. And it's it, I think it's interesting when you ask people about the Hornby Museum with you know 
last few days I've been sort of saying to people, oh, we, we went to the museum with the show. Like, That's great, isn't it? And like um, a couple of our friends, Jess Cave and Paul Sheen, went the day after us and uh, loved it. Xylophones, bunny rabbits. What's not to love? I don't know if you're involved in any way in Florence Hill Fashion Week, Steve. Not a great deal. <laughs> Just not so much as I usually am. I've, I've, I've taken a bit of a step back this year. I'm like, you guys go on and I'm please, Steve, get involved. I'm like, I can't. I can't, I can't give, give myself that much anymore. I've not looked into the whole Forest Hill Fashion Week particularly, but there's a thing at the Horniman Museum on the 20th of September. Um, it's fashion late, 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock. And like, there's catwalk shows, there's a market demonstrations, talks, makeovers, masterclasses. Sounds really good. I'm a big fan of late nights at museums and galleries anyway. Um, I've never been to one or known of one, even at the Hornman, but... Um, yeah, well... I'd imagine it'd be brilliant. Yeah. I mean, obviously, when you hear Forest Hill Fashion Week, the first thing you think of is that underwear shop that sells bras up to K cup size. Like, are, Is it? Is that the first thing? <laughs> what are they doing? For the for Forest Hill Fashion Week. <laughs> if you're from that shop, if you just let us know at SLHC. The fitting room, I think it's called. The fitting room, yeah. Okay. We are available for sponsorship. <laughs> yeah.